Before the coronavirus kept many people working from home, the commute was a regular part of daily life. From 1980 to 2020, commute time increased to just about every year for Americans. In 2018, research found that the average American would spend a full 9.4 days of their year commuting to work. Interestingly, the same data showed that Americans would spend only 7.9 days taking care of their family. Man, I always hate research things like that. And then you find out like how long you spend on like one app. Who has on their iPhone the screen time thing turned off? I turn that off immediately. I don't need to know how much time I'm looking at my phone. Now, admittedly, my commute is pretty short, but usually I don't mind to drive. However, if I find myself on a drive and I see the dreaded flagger ahead sign, man, does my mood deteriorate because there's nothing to me that feels more like a waste of time than sitting at a stop in the construction zone. I'm just cranky about it. Maybe you love staying uh, just stopped on the 43, wondering if you'll ever be able to go again as like tractors slowly go back and forth across. The closing pages of Acts focus mostly on Paul's voyage to Rome. From the human perspective, it is a colossal waste of time. It takes forever, it costs way too much, and it nearly claims several hundred lives. Now, we know, as people who've been reading the book and who are familiar with the story, we know that Jesus Christ wants Paul to get to Rome so that he might act as a witness to the people there and to the emperor himself. The same God, by the way, who speaks and it is done, the God who commands the wind and the waves, the God who can calm any storm and deliver his people instantly to the further shore, he wanted Paul in Italy. Isn't it interesting then that he put the apostle on this trip where so much time seems wasted, especially after more than two years of his life had already been what looks like wasted, sitting in a jail cell in Caesarea. Now, of course, as Christians, we know that the time is only wasted from a human perspective. We love this story. It's one of our favorite Paul stories, the shipwreck at sea. I wonder if it's one of his favorite stories. Probably not while it was happening. But we love this story. We are so thankful that it happened to him and his friends. We're so thankful that we have this incredible record of sailing and shipwreck, of miracles and ministry, which has been read by countless of millions of people for thousands of years all around the world. As the saga unfolds in the chapters before us, we can be sure there were other people who also would end up being very happy that God, quote unquote, wasted Paul's time on this ship. Like, for example, the 273 other passengers who otherwise would have been lost in the sea on their voyage, but for Paul's presence. Also, the many who would be healed and evangelized on the island of Malta once the apostle washed up on the shore. They're happy he was on the boat. We can't begin to calculate how many lives and souls have been saved and impacted because Paul's time was wasted on this long crossing. As we start out with him in this section of scripture, we can see this voyage. I mean, it really happened. This is a historical, accurate account of something that really happened. But it also gives us an analogy of life in a sense. Paul would be sailing to a great city he'd never been to, one out further than he had ever gone before, where he would stand before the throne of the king. On the ship, he was surrounded with all sorts of people, some who were happy to be headed towards Rome, some who would give anything to avoid it, people of every class and background and personality. Some were Christians, most were not. 
But there they all are headed toward the horizon, facing troubles and choices and questions together. In the first part of the text, a theme that comes across is just the difficulty of life's voyage. And in the second part, we see the defiance of the lost voyagers around us. And we see how the Christian brings aid throughout, even when we also are facing dangers and struggles and setbacks. So begin in verse one, it says, when it was decided that we were to sail to Italy, they handed over Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion named Julius of the Imperial Regiment. When it was decided, decided by who? Not by Paul, but by the Roman officials. At the moment, he was at the mercy of the governing authorities around him. He had been waiting for quite some time for what was next in his service to the Lord. Paul's a guy on the move. Paul is a guy who is always busy doing things for the Lord, doing things to support the ministry, doing things to support other believers. I mean, he was a man full of energy and unction and function for the Lord. And yet for two years, he's just kind of been hanging out in Caesarea, locked up without much going on. Uh, and so he was sort of at the mercy of the governing authorities around him. Finally, he gets some traction. He's going to get to move into this next you know, phase of service to the Lord. And they book him a ticket to Rome, but it's not first class. It's not business class. It's not even coach. He'll be traveling as a prisoner. On the government's dime, yes, which is nice, but still as a prisoner, still in shackles. We will not always have the deciding vote on the flow of our lives. Uh, we have a lot of ability to order our lives. You know, we have a lot of a freedom in this wonderful country. Um, there's a lot of abundance and opportunity in this country. And so in our day-to-day -day life, we frankly have the ability to order our lives the way we want them most of the time pretty easily. But the, the, the fact of the matter is we are not always going to have the deciding vote on how our life is going to go. Things both small and great that will happen that are beyond our control. But we can be sure that nothing is outside of God's charge or care for us. This was undoubtedly not the way Paul would have chosen to get to Rome. Jesus came and said, hey, I, you have, you know, it's necessary for you to go and testify in Rome. And Paul didn't say, you know, it would be great for me to be in chains for two years, then be transported as a prisoner, then take forever to get there, shipwreck, hang out on some weird island with a bunch of pagans for a few months, and then eventually maybe get to Rome. That's not what Paul would have planned. Uh, but even though this is how it was unfolding, we don't see Paul pouting about it or letting it ruin his attitude or his testimony. He persevered, even under these much, than, uh, much less than ideal circumstances. You know, for us, after many generations of autonomy and liberty, it seems like, given the, the events of the past year or so, it seems like, in general, our society is going to start constraining us more than before, right? And I don't mean this as any kind of prediction or anything, but we just look around and we see a loss of a number of freedoms that we used to have, right? Where, where the powers that be are saying, no, this is what you're doing or not doing now. And everyone has to make different decisions you know, within that framework and everything. But there, there is a change, a societal change, a governmental change of, of how the people of our society are being addressed and treated and all of those sorts of things. And it seems like we're losing a little bit of autonomy. 
And as Christians, we may be facing a new level of friction that we've never known before in this nation. Uh, that just seems to be the way that things are trending. But even if that's the case, and no matter how uh, much pressure builds upon us as individuals and us as Christians in particular, we can still persevere. And more than that, not just you know, grit our teeth you know, and bite down while, while you ever seen those, those old Western movies? It's like bite the stick while they saw your leg off, right? <laughs> you can endure. And I think a lot of times as Christians, when I hear the word persevere, endure, that's what I'm imagining. But when we see the Christians in the book of Acts persevering and enduring, they're like singing in, in, in dungeons and they're rejoicing in the Lord after being beaten with rods, right? So to persevere as a Christian, it means we can still be full of joy and rejoicing. We can still keep a hopeful heart because our faith is not dependent on circumstances. It's dependent on the Lord and the Lord never fails and he never leaves us and he never abandons us. And so while I want to, I, I would choose for myself a life of freedom and autonomy and opportunity like we enjoy in this wonderful nation, if things change and suddenly our experience becomes more like the experience of the Christians in the book of Acts or Christians in Syria or Christians in other parts of the world, the Lord is still the same and our faith should still be the same, still full of joy, still full of rejoicing, still full of hope like we see on the pages of scripture. On this trip, we're gonna find that Paul has a bunch of different people around him. There's Julius, a revered and important centurion. The boat will naturally have a bunch of sailors on board, some merchants too. We're also told that there are a number of other prisoners being taken along with Paul. Now, we don't know who exactly they were, what their particular cases are, but it's probable that some of them were appealing to Caesar the way that Paul was, maybe. It's also probable that some of them or many of them were being sent to Rome for execution, specifically in the gladiatorial games. Yeah, guys that were sentenced to death and they said, you know, it'd be a good way to kill you. We'll have a lion eat you for everyone's entertainment, right? And so uh, that is an interesting crowd to be hanging out with on this trip. There are a few other people with Paul too, verse two. When we had boarded a ship of Adramitium, we put to sea, intending to sail to ports along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. So we see we and us again. We haven't seen that in a while in the narrative of Luke, or in the narrative of Acts. It's Dr. Luke talking. And what a joy to have Dr. Luke back on the scene with Paul. He's going to go through a lot with Paul, ultimately being with him there at the very end, just about seven years later, when Paul is ultimately beheaded. If you're not familiar with um, what happens with Paul uh, past Acts 28, what seems happened, he stands before Nero and he's acquitted the first time he stands before Nero. He has a few more years where he does some things, he's imprisoned again, and then ultimately he is beheaded. And it seems from the very last words that we read of, of Paul in 2 Timothy that Luke is with him. And so we feel quite confident that Luke was with him all the way to the end. But it's not just the dyna dynamic duo together. We see another familiar name, Aristarchus. We've seen him before in the book of Acts. He had been with Paul in the city of Ephesus and his trip to Jerusalem. He was a good and faithful man. We don't really have time to talk about him much uh, tonight, so I'm gonna talk about him right now. Uh, so Aristarchus, again, I don't know about you, but if you ask me, start naming you know, significant characters in the New Testament, he doesn't even pop up on my radar. But a really great guy, interesting guy, 
He, he went through a lot as well. He was in Ephesus. He's a Jewish believer out in the Greek world. And he was one of the guys that when the silversmiths started rioting, they were trying to find Paul, they couldn't, so they found two of his companions and drugged them through the city. Aristarchus was one of those guys. Aristarchus then traveled with Paul to Jerusalem as part of his, his group there, if you recall from those studies as they were making their way back. Later in Paul's epistles, he's gonna to refer to Aristarchus as uh, my, my co-worker in the gospel. And so he was serving with Paul and uh, doing a lot of good stuff for the gospel. And on top of that, he's later going to be referred to by Paul as my fellow prisoner. And so Aristarchus, a really interesting guy. Uh, we don't know exactly all that he did. He didn't have a flashy ministry. You know, he, didn't, he doesn't have his name in lights or anything. There's no devotionals written about him. Um, but I love that. When I think of Paul shipwrecked at sea, I think of Paul. And sometimes I think of Luke, if I'm really feeling sharp. I never even think about this other guy who volunteered to be on this ship, who said, I just wanna serve Paul. I just wanna serve the Lord. I'll go through whatever I need to go through. I don't need accolades. I don't need special treatment. I just wanna help do the Lord's work. And those are the kind of Christians that we wanna be. Uh, probably most of us are not going to be called to very large, prominent ministry where lots of people around the nation, around the world know our name. And you know what? That's okay. And frankly, as we see how hard it is for prominent Christians to finish well uh, in the news today and just in our generation, it's probably better for us that we have a quiet ministry, a quiet life that is impacting people and making a difference for time and for eternity. But man, we want to be the Aristarchus crew. He, he, he went the distance just like Paul did. I don't remember him nearly as much as I should, but he's a good man. Now, these fellows give us our first example of how Christians can give aid and support in the journey of life. Neither Luke nor Aristarchus had to take this trip with Paul. They volunteered. Some speculate that the only way they would have been allowed to tag along would, to, uh, would be to do so as Paul's slaves. Some scholars think that they would have had to sign up and enroll as slaves to Paul in order to be allowed on this trip pretty sure they would have had to pay their way, their own way, whether they were his slaves or not. And so they demonstrate for us that Christians are meant to support one another, serving one another out of love and compassion. And we are not to stingily cling to our material resources, but put them also into the Lord's service, to be sacrificial with our own lives and with our own purse in order to support Christians around us and to do the Lord's work. They also show that in ministry, things often get worse before they get better. They're doing a good thing, a good service to their friend and the Lord, but man, are they gonna suffer a lot in the meantime. And, and I, I suppose they could have said to the Lord, excuse me, I volunteered. This is my me time. And I volunteered to help, to help Paul and you're shipwrecking us. But of course, that's not their heart. They have a heart of submission and they understood that suffering is part of the deal. It's part of not only the human experience, but it's part of the Christian experience uh, that we suffer. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Verse three, the next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and allowed him to, <laughs> allowed him to go to his friends to receive their care. It's pretty remarkable that Julius gave Paul this amount of liberty. Remember, if a Roman soldier lost a prisoner, he would forfeit his own life. 
So maybe Julius had become a Christian. It's possible. It's very likely that he was in the audience uh, when uh, Herod Agrippa and Festus had that big, you know, to do that we looked at in the previous weeks. And so maybe he had become a believer. We don't know. At very least, it's clear that he and Paul had a very understanding and respectful relationship with one another. And that shows us something important about Paul as a Christian. It shows us that he wasn't an antagonist towards this centurion. He wasn't rude or bitter toward Julius or resentful. As always, he was full of grace, even toward that poster boy of the evil empire, right? Julius is the quintessential figure of the evil, godless empire that was seeking to, you know, wrongfully imprison Paul. And even to that guy, Paul is gracious and respectful and has a very good, dynamic, friendly relationship with him as an individual. We also see these Sidonian Christians ready to help the apostle in his time of need. Though Paul hadn't been necessarily mistreated in Caesarea, it wasn't like the jail in Philippi. I mean, he would have been fed and treated relatively well as a prisoner, yet he wouldn't have on this trip belongings and changes of clothes and money for the road or some of the other comforts that we might take for granted. And so here, on very short notice, with a very short window of opportunity, these Christians, these Sidonians, were ready to give of themselves so that Paul could be helped and assisted on the next leg of his trip. While we can't always count on the world and the powers within it to treat us so kindly as Paul is treated here, we should be able to count on one another's in the body of Christ. The Christian church is a family, and we want to be ready to take care of one another at the drop of a hat. In any case, they couldn't do much, right? They couldn't do a whole lot, but they could do something. They could provide a cloak. They could provide a few coins for his passage. They could probably give him some food and some you know, rations for him to take with him. Not a lot, not a truckload. It wasn't a, a huge amount. They couldn't provide him with free legal you know, uh, representation or anything like that, but they could do something. Sometimes we feel inadequate to deal with the huge problems that are affecting our world or even people that we know who are facing just incredible suffering, incredible difficulty, and we're thinking, man, what can I do? Uh, maybe we can't fix the whole problem, but we can do something. And remember, even a cup of cold water given to a fellow believer moves the needle of eternity. Jesus says, hey, we count that. You gave a cup of cold water to one of these disciples, and, and for that, your reward is not going to be forgotten. Verse 4, when we had put out to sea from there, we sailed along the northern coast of Cyprus because the winds were against us. The voyage is hard. They would have small sections of relative ease, but on the whole, it's going to be uh, a struggle. As an analogy of life, we see that on the one hand, everyone is in it together, but you've got on this ship people with very different mindsets on board. Some are there because it's their duty, the sailors, the soldiers. Some are there because they're trying to make a buck in trade. Some are prisoners there, not really wanting to go along at all. And then there are three on board whose goal in life is to honor God and to do his work. Very different than everybody else. You have a bunch of people who have a lot of you know, human motivations or different reasons why they're where they're at. And you have three people in the midst of that. You say, well, we have a different purpose. Our whole purpose, why are we on this boat? Because I want to honor God and glorify God. I want to follow God. And he led me here. Man, is that different 
than the sailor at the helm or the soldier guarding the prisoners or the prisoners about to be fed by lions. It's a completely different mindset, a completely different way of life, a completely different way of looking at uh, the circumstances and everything. And so what we notice though is that together they're all gonna encounter headwinds and tailwinds. All of them are gonna suffer along the way. All of them are gonna have hardship. Why isn't there a differentiation? If God cares so much for us and gives us important jobs to do in his kingdom, why not just give us smooth sailing all the time? Why not exempt us from the difficulties of life like he did in the land of Goshen during the plagues on Egypt? At first, the plagues were over everybody. And then God said, hey, I'm gonna make a distinction. The rest of these plagues are, are only gonna hit Egyptians and the land of Goshen where the Israelites are, it's not gonna touch them at all. There's not gonna be any darkness in Goshen. There's all these other things aren't gonna happen. So why doesn't God do that for us as we're seeking to honor him and follow him and go his way? Well, for one thing, the Lord wants us among the lost so that they might be saved. He also wants to show his strength through our weakness. And as I said before, the Christian suffering in this passage leads to evangelism and healings and all sorts of impact that has shaken the world for the last 2,000 years. One example, um, scholars and commentators will point out and, and list a bunch of things about this particular passage of Acts and how detailed and accurate Luke is and how he uses all of these in the original language, all of these nautical terms that were outside of his specialty as a doctor. And they're saying, hey, he's being really careful. He's being very meticulous. He's being very thorough in how he is recording this story. And they will cite that the way that Luke chronicles this story with all the detail is a major proof for the authenticity of his work as a historian. Now, we don't need this account in Acts 27 to believe the rest of the doctor's book, right? I mean, we believe by faith and we trust that the Bible is inspired and inerrant and infallible and all of that. But for the outside world, these verses that we're reading give a great amount of validity to the book as a whole. And, uh, and that is a good thing. Verse five, after sailing through the open sea off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we reached Myra in Lycia. So at first they had contrary winds. Now they were able to cross the open sea a bit. I imagine the helmsman and the others on the ship thought, glad we got through that. You remember in uh, the movie Apollo 13, there's that moment right after liftoff where the center engine switches off for a minute and Tom Hanks, they get it resolved. And Tom Hanks says that great line, looks like we just had a glitch for this mission. And that's a funny line because you're there to watch about how the whole trip is a complete disaster. But Jim Lovell and the other characters don't know it yet when they say that. And they say, oh, phew, we got through that center engine shut off. It's smooth sailing to the moon now. They had no idea what was really in store for them. And so we see there in verse four, man, it was hard. The winds were against us. But finally, verse five, we get, we have some open sea. We can get across. The leg of the trip in verse four was tough. The one in verse five, a bit easier. And the Christian life is full of headwinds and tailwinds, discoveries and losses, battles and rests. We can't predict what tomorrow holds, but we can rest assured that the Lord knows and he is with us and that we can trust him no matter what we face. Verse six, there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We will be told later that this is a cargo ship bringing grain to Italy. I imagine that the crew were uh, more of the salty sort, uh, like the fellows on The Deadliest Catch, if you ever watch that, because you see, sea travel was already like crazy hard back then. Uh, I mean, 
they have no engines, okay? That's enough to make it much harder <laughs> than, but they have no engines. Uh, but these guys would have to go from Egypt to Rome delivering grain, not just delivering it, but delivering it safe and dry on a wooden boat in wooden barrels in the ocean. I don't know how anybody did any of this kind of stuff. But they're already, we'll find, very late in the sailing season, so much so that a ship like this, his historians record, would be offering extra bonuses and insurance for those willing to take a trip this late. So I think these are like, these are salty dogs, okay? One source adds this. This was a sturdy ship, but in high seas, it had definite disadvantages. It had no rudder like a modern ship, but was steered by two great paddles extending from the stern. <laughs> Chief among its drawbacks was that it could not sail into the wind. That's gonna be a big problem. Verse seven, sailing slowly for many days with difficulty, we arrived off Nidus, since the wind did not allow us to approach it. We sailed along the south side of Crete off Salmon. With still more difficulty, we sailed along the coast and came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. It was slow going. To the merchants and soldiers on board, this would have been more than just an inconvenience or a setback. For them, time was money, right? We've got a job to do. We've got to deliver this. Every day that we're out here, that's, that's money wasted. Now, Paul had been in a years-long period of slow going in his life. And yet, for the Christian, time isn't money. We can be content and abound in all situations. Our mood and our choices aren't supposed to be determined by the circumstances of our lives. Remember, we're meant to live on a higher level, fulfilling a higher purpose. Our minds and our hearts are to be set on things above. That's why Paul and Silas can sing praises in a Philippian dungeon, right? That's why the apostles can go out from the Sanhedrin rejoicing after they've been, been brutally beaten just for preaching the name of Jesus Christ because they weren't living under their circumstances. They had their minds set above, not on things of the earth, but they had their mind and their heart dedicated unto the Lord. And they realize that the present sufferings are nothing in comparison to the life of fullness and the future hope of glory that the Lord offers to his people. So yes, life is full of difficulties and frustrations and inconveniences, but we remind ourselves that we are on a very different trip than the grain merchants or the condemned gladiators or any of the other you know, people on this boat around us, right? Life is a completely different thing for us. The trip that we're on is a completely different one than any of those people were experiencing. Now, this slow sailing simply gave Paul and his friends more time to minister to the hundreds of lost people around them. You know who is glad to have a few extra days on the ocean? The dudes are gonna be eaten by lions, right? The dudes who are, are facing certain execution in Rome. I bet they were really thankful to have a few extra days on the open ocean, not just thankful, but Man, what an opportunity that day after day as they're down there in the hold and Paul's probably mingling back and forth, but going down there and saying, hey, what are you doing? Yeah, I'm gonna go get eaten by a lion. How about you? And he says, oh yeah, let me talk to you about Jesus Christ. Let me talk to you about the time I was executed. What? Yeah, yeah, I was stoned to death. Let me talk to you about how I had to contend with beasts at Ephesus. What? And I mean, who knows how many of those men gave their lives to the Lord as they made this passage. And so 
they would have had opportunity to minister to a captive audience of hundreds of people during this slow sailing. But it also gave the Christians time to be together and sing and pray and talk to one another about the Lord. Hey, once they get to Rome, they don't know what's gonna happen. I mean, Paul says, hey, remember what he told his friends when they said, don't go to Rome, don't go to Rome, don't go to Rome. He says, hey, stop breaking my heart. I'm ready to die when I get to Rome. And so while we know the rest of the story, the three guys, the three friends, Paul, Aristarchus, and Luke, have to face the very real potential that they're going to get off the boat in Rome, he's gonna go before Nero, and then that will be it, Paul will be dead. And so wouldn't you be thankful to have a few extra days and weeks with your close friend, with the apostle Paul, while you're looking down the barrel of, of sitting before Caesar Nero? And they would have had all this time to sing together and pray together and, and talk to one another. In fact, some scholars believe that during Paul's two years in Caesarea, Luke would have been able to then go and do a bunch of research for his gospel. Uh, and that's really important because think of all of the wonderful things he would have been able to then tell Paul about. Paul didn't know all of the things that Jesus had said and done. He wasn't an eyewitness to Jesus's ministry those three and a half years around Judea. And so Luke would have gone and done all of this research and talked to the apostles and gathered all of these things. And he would have been able to come back and say, Paul, let me tell you some stories. Now, Paul had an amazing dynamic, you know, somewhat unique relationship with Jesus Christ in the sense that, I mean, he, Jesus Christ hasn't ever appeared to me <laughs> visibly. And he had to Paul more than once. And so not taking away anything about Paul's understanding, but he simply didn't know everything that Jesus had said. He didn't have a copy of the New Testament. He probably didn't have the Sermon of the Mount memorized by this point. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But Luke would have been able to tell him things about his Lord that he perhaps never had heard before. The slow going of life can be absolutely full of spiritual richness for the Christian as we keep a proper perspective. And as we just keep the heavenly things in our mind and set our hearts on things above and, okay, so I'm stopped behind the flagger at the 43, who really cares? Because my time is meant to be spent unto the Lord and it's his breath in my lungs. And that's the way that these guys operated. And we see how they changed the world because of it. Verse nine, by now much time had passed and the voyage was already dangerous since the day of atonement was already over. Paul gave his advice. In the last four verses, we're gonna see the defiance of these lost voyagers. Here we're reminded that with each day that passes, the trip becomes more dangerous for unbelievers. We don't know if we have 50 years or 50 days left on the earth. But sooner or later, the trip's coming to an end. I would say that, you know, sooner or later, we all have an appointment with death, but it's our present hope that, you know, for those of us who are Christians, we believe in the imminency of the rapture and that could happen at any moment. So it's altogether possible that some believers here will not die. Barring that, the trip is going to come to an end at some point. And for the unsaved, every day spent outside of the protection of Jesus Christ is one day closer to death, eternal death. Luke puts the trip on a calendar for us. He says it was after the Day of Atonement. It's a Jewish feast. It would have been late September or early October. But there's a good devotional thought for anyone who may be listening who isn't a Christian. And here's what it is. Atonement has been made right? We're past atonement. Jesus Christ came, lived, died, and rose again. He made atonement for your sins. What does that mean? John, the apostle, explains to us, he said, 
Jesus himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. He covers them. He takes our sins away. He bears away our guilt and give us everlasting life. But he doesn't save anyone who isn't willing. And every day that you as an unbeliever spend, every beat of your heart, it brings you that much closer to death. And then comes judgment. Like this ship in Acts, you are headed for a wreck. And the only way of escape is through Jesus Christ, the Savior. Now, Paul was a seasoned traveler. He maybe had the most experience of anyone on board, uh, maybe less than the captain, but he certainly had more experience in shipwrecks than anyone else on board. <laughs> By this point, Paul had already been shipwrecked three times. He talked to the Corinthians about that in 2 Corinthians. He had already delivered that letter to them. And so he knew when a ship was <laughs> heading down. Here was his advice, verse 10. He told them, men... I can see that this voyage is headed toward disaster and heavy loss, not only of the cargo but, uh, and the ship, but also of our lives. Now, Paul hadn't received a prophecy. He's using common sense here. I do find it interesting that he seemed to think that it was a real possibility that they might all die. He includes himself. He says, the loss of our lives. What about Jesus sending him to Rome? Now, I think he could, on the one hand, rest in that calling. On the other hand, Paul knew that life is unpredictable. Listen, in the Bible, we have multiple examples of believers dying early and believers dying late. Believers dying early. Ananias and Sapphira, we have to come to the conclusion that they died early. The in, believers in Corinth were told like, hey, you're going home early because of your sin." It wasn't that God forced them to commit these weird sins and he said, okay, and that was the day you were appointed to die. I mean, the Bible said that they were dying early. How about late? Well, we would say that King Hezekiah is a great example of, of a believer who died late. He got the sickness, prophet comes to him and says, you're gonna die, get your house in order. He freaks out, begs the Lord to spare his life. He says, okay, we'll do that. You're gonna have 15 more years. In that 15-year period, Hezekiah fathers Manasseh, one of the worst kings in all the Old Testament. Uh, during that 15-year period, he makes this incredible pride-filled blunder, which brings on the Babylonians, uh, you know, effectively precipitates the Babylonian captivity, brings the envoys from Babylon and shows them all his gold and how much stuff they have. That dude died late. He should have died 15 years before, as far as how we read it, right? So, listen. On the individual level, our lives are going to be unpredictable. We have a lot of insight into world history and present happenings and God's plan for the future, and those things are secure. But for us as individuals, I, you don't know if you're gonna make it home tonight. That's a grim thought, but we don't know. And, and at the same time, you know that God has put callings on your lives and given you opportunities and given you commands and it, those sorts of things. And yet, balanced with that is the unpredictability of this life in a fallen world that you don't know. And we don't have to worry about it. We can trust the Lord and trust his plan and investigate and concentrate on what he's revealed in the Bible. And in the meantime, as we're doing that, also exercise sanctified common sense and make the most of the opportunities before us. And when we see a situation that we're in headed for disaster, say, hey, I think we're headed for disaster. We should probably not keep sailing. Let's not tempt God. Let's not tempt disaster in that way. Now, like this ship, our world is on a collision course with disaster. Even in the unbelieving world, it's full of just people freaking out, talking about the end of everything. They talk about climate change wiping us all out or the next pandemic that will have more like a 40 or 50% fatality rate. 
maybe another American civil war or some atomic attack somewhere. NASA is always trying to freak us out with meteors coming into our orbital path. It's always these news stories. There's, a, there's just the size of New Jersey and it's going to miss us by one eighth of an inch. Like, I don't need to know that. Nobody needs to know that. Is there anything we can do about it? No. All right. Then the Lord knows and we don't need to know any of that. So the world outside is like saying, what's going to happen? Who's going to save us? Well, Christians know we have the real answers and we can share them. And along the way, like Paul, we should be wise. Paul was wise. He had knowledge and experience and compassion. And he tried to give them, an aid, give them aid in the form of helpful advice. Verse 11, but the centurion paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than to what Paul said. I can imagine Julius coming below deck and saying to Paul, come up with me to a meeting. He respected him. He knew what Paul was about. He knew Paul was a serious man with a lot of experience. Then they're talking there and Paul gives a suggestion and the captain goes, who's this? Oh, this is one of our prisoners. He's got some ideas about how you should sail your ship. What? Like, no, no one asked to hear from the Jewish rabbi who's chained to a soldier right now. Despite Julius's respect for Paul, in the end, he was more persuaded by the experts and the entrepreneurs. They thought they could pilot their way out of disaster. They could grit their way out of disaster somehow. They had no plan. They were flying in the face of plain facts, but they were unwilling to admit that they'd been beaten. They were just barreling ahead anyway. The Christian perspective will often seem foolish and out of place to unbelievers. It doesn't mean it's wrong or shouldn't be shared. One easy example. The Christian says, if you dismantle the family, society will crumble. And the unbelieving world mocks that, scoffs at it. You Christians, you're just old fashioned and out of touch. And so then we see society press in to their own plan in the face of facts and in the face of common sense. And then what happens? Society starts to crumble because they're sailing into the difficulties of life and their ship doesn't even have a rudder. These guys don't even have a rudder. And they're like, we can do it. How are you gonna do it? You're totally not gonna do it. And this happens to us as Christians a lot of times where we say, hey, excuse me, we, we know how to help a national society. Righteousness exalts a nation. You don't know what you're talking about. Let's just go forward. But we have no rudder to do it. And so we do our best. We share our wisdom and advice. And often it's not going to be taken. Verse 12, since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided to set sail from there, hoping somehow to reach Phoenix, a harbor on Crete facing the southwest and northwest, and to winter there. Fair Havens was a sleepy little port, no nightlife. Phoenix, on the other hand, unlike Arizona, had much more to offer. It was a good spot for a few months shore leave. And the majority voted for that. And as is so often the case, the majority was dead wrong. They were hoping to somehow make it to a safe harbor, but with no plan, no protection from the storm that was waiting for them. Luckily, there were some Christians on board giving the right perspective, bringing some hope, bringing some options. And when that was ignored, the Christians were still there willing to intercede on the behalf of the doomed. John Phillips points out how fortunate this ship is that they had Paul on board, not Jonah. The, gr <laughs> the crew, right? The crew of the ship headed toward Tarshish. They had to go down and shake Jonah awake. And they said, why are you asleep? Why aren't you helping us? Pray to your God or something. They're like, oh, they're like at the end of their rope. Jonah's checked out. He doesn't care what's going on. Not Paul. He left that meeting and went down below to pray for the salvation of everyone aboard. And God granted him his request. Every life was going to be spared despite their foolish decision to ignore him and to sail on. So 
We see God's people on the ship mingling graciously among these other souls. We see them supporting one another, staying contented, even when it seems like time was being utterly wasted. We see them acting wisely and patiently. Doubtless, Paul and his friends were bringing the gospel to soldiers and sailors and those facing the lion's mouths. There was nothing wasted about this time. And no matter what setbacks or difficulties you may be facing as a Christian, none of it needs to be wasted. You've got opportunities to minister, people to intercede for, time to grow in your depth of love for the Lord, chances to support your brothers and sisters. So whatever leg of the journey you're on, make the most of your trip. Amen?